G'day and welcome to another episode of Left After Breakfast coming to you from Melbourne, Australia broadcast from the studios of 3CR your only radio left my name is Susanna Duffy in this episode here in the middle of Pornich tadpole season in Melbourne we have our last chance to say something about the referendum for the voice so we'll do that and of course we will look again at the tragedy of Westgate Bridge. The bridge came down 53 years ago, but honestly, it really seems like last week. And so many still grieve. So first of all, we'll hear from the BL from the bush. Yeah, good morning, comrade. Morning, listener. BL from the bush calling in from Rudgery country. Always was, always will be. Hope are all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Well, the vote for the uh, referendum, the voice to Parliament's up and about and just about on us. And I'd just like to uh, say a few words about that. Over the past few weeks, I've attended a massive rally in the city. 80,000-plus people attended that. Also a gathering at Lilydale and uh, there's band and some Aboriginal people speaking to the voice there. Now, over that journey I'd run into Natasha. She also was attending these and had some thoughts on the referendum and why she is voting yes. So, I'd just like to introduce you to Natasha. So, you've been to these demos, Natasha. It's not your first rodeo, as they say in the classic. So... Well, why, why are you going to vote yes in their referendum? There are a lot of reasons, and I could go into all the history because I think that without having some understanding of the history of this colonised land, we don't understand where all this is coming from and where it needs to go. But firstly, I'll quote what another person in this area said to me, she doesn't want to wake up on Sunday morning, the 15th of October, and if there's a no vote, to go, well, we don't trust Aboriginal people to have a say in running their own affairs at all. That would make her feel ashamed. And on a positive light, I think this all goes back to Malcolm Turnbull's rejection of the Uluru Statement from the Heart in 2016-17 and if he hadn't done that we would be in a very different situation today. At Uluru then they, Indigenous people came from all over Australia, a huge process on their own terms and were able to come up with something they could all agree on to put to the rest of the Australian population and this is the basis of the core, the heart of what we're voting on and why voting yes is supporting what we know was the capacity of Aboriginal people to come together and reach agreement and have a voice. That's the voice, that's the real source of the voice I think that we're voting on in this referendum. So, of course, 
I would say yes. I would write yes. Yeah, that's, that's a very good point. And with the whole basis of, of the referendum uh, and to give the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people the voice, it all stemmed from the Uluru statement from the heart. And as you said, the people come from... But in Australia and the islands, massive, massive area to, um, to go. And there were young people. There were the aunties, there was the uncles, there were the elders. And, and what they did, which was very significant, they found within their own people, and people had been to university to learn language, to learn on-country language that had been taken from, these, from the people through the stolen generation. They were able to use the interpreters and get the feeling of the mob out there. And they did that, with the, as I said, with young, young people, with volunteers, with educated, with academics, all the way through. And they came back and they sat down. Yes, they argued. Yes, they bickered and whatever. But still, they came up with something that they did, in the end, agree on. And that was for, for them to have a voice about their business. It's not a lay-down, Mazaire. All it is is to put an advisory committee to the parliament and then when Aboriginal issues are talked about or when they want to put something forward, it goes to the parliament and then the process, like any other thing else, will start. I don't normally do this, but I would encourage people to, um, to vote yes, but I certainly am going to vote yes. I just think that just for your own self, peace of mind, you'll be able to wake up and say, yes, I had a significant part in history by again giving our Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders a voice and a leg up and let them be recognised as people. Because don't forget, listener, 1967, these people were not even valued in this country. They weren't even allowed to vote, therefore they, you know, they weren't in existence here. The governments of the day knew more about how many head of cattle and sheep were in the country than what they did about Indigenous, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. So I'll just leave you with that, uh, listener. Is where That's 1967, now we're here, and things haven't changed a real lot in, in between, so let's make significant change. So I'll go out in the same old way. Dare, dare to struggle. Dare to win. If you don't fight, you lose. Good morning from Left After Breakfast, the only show left. I will be voting yes, a wholehearted yes. Yes to caring for country. Yes to listening. Yes to respect. Yes to a better nation for us all. I'm voting yes to the voice. Let's face it, if we want to be fair dinkum, First Nations people should be given recognition in our constitution and we should take their advice on decisions that affect them. That's not rocket science. But the main reason I'm voting yes is to send a message to First Nations people that they matter. 3CR We remember that just before lunch on the 15th of October 1970, the Westgate Bridge suddenly groaned. An eerie pinging noise filled the air. A storm of rust flakes peeled off weathered steel. The girders started to turn blue. 
the bridge fell away beneath the feet of men. Minutes later, 35 workers were dead. And we're going to hear from Tommy Watson, who was there on that terrible day and the terrible days that followed. Be warned, listener, this recording is in parts horrific. There is also some language which is not entirely family-friendly. 1970, it was a Thursday, 10 to 12. I was 23 years of age. It was a nice sunny day. It was payday, and in them days we got paid by cash, and everybody was quite happy because we used to get paid uh, just after lunch. It was 10 to 12. There was at least two people sitting on the toilet, two men. There was at least two or three standing having a wee in the toilet. There were three or four men walking in and out of the sheds to get their lunch. Uh, there was people coming out of the bridge, walk, walking to, uh, to go into the sheds. And people were just sitting, working, minding their own business. And then at 10 to 12, the Westgate Bridge collapsed. Killed 35 people. 18 people wrote it down. 18 people survived, but most of those people did not have a quality of life. You've got to really have a look at, there were three box girders bridges built in the world. One in Milford Haven. It collapsed in Wales and killed four workers. The Westgate Bridge killed 35, and there's one in Germany that didn't collapse. Three box girder bridges built in this world, and two of them killed workers out of three. They don't build box girder bridges anymore today. About 10 or 15 days before the Westgate Bridge collapsed, one person come in into the shed. You've got to remember there was no mobile phones, no computers. We didn't have the technology people got today. And said to a couple of people, he was speaking to his cousin last night in England, and he said that a bridge collapsed and four people have been killed. We just kept on working. We didn't really understand the ramifications. Then a few of the English engineers, because a lot of the people, Freeman and Fox was the company that designed it, they started telling us that uh, they'd been talking to their relatives and it was a box girder bridge designed by Freeman Fox. So after a few days of rumours going around the job, one morning there was 450 workers refused to go to work. We sat in the shed, we demanded union officials to come down and it took about two days and we stayed in the sheds for two days. We had a, a, a meeting with a person called Jack Hinshaw who told us he was the best bridge builder in the world and he designed the Westgate Bridge. He also helped to design Milford Haven and, and also Germany that he didn't tell us. Uh, we had this long story from him how safe the bridge was, uh, the bridge wouldn't collapse, um, it was safe, etc., etc. The management addressed us probably for a couple of hours, I suppose. Then they left and we were sitting there two union officials, and we're having a debate whether we go back to work or not. In them days, we just didn't have the resources that we've got today. The union officials did their best. They had as much skills as we had. We had a long debate, and all I can, all I can talk about is my personal experience. I voted to go back to work, not because Hindshaw told us he was the best bridger in the world, because he was on the job 
most of the time. He was at the coalface. So I said from my personal point of view, if he's at the coalface every day, he's there every day, and he thinks it's safe, well, that's good enough for me. And we decided to go back to work. And then eight days later, the Westgate Bridge collapsed and killed 35 workers. Jack Hinshaw got killed and he took 34 people with him. When it collapsed, um, it was absolute chaos. And I'm going to go into some details if people don't want to hear it, but I think it's important people know the whole story. It was absolute chaos. If anybody's ever been there, at the back of this room, there's a road. That's how close it was to the Westgate. That road was not closed for about an hour, I suppose. There was buses and cars going past. I can remember getting a body out looking up and a school bus went past us and they were looking at us. It just wasn't... It was just absolute chaos. When the fire brigade, the ambulance and the police turned up, they were absolutely useless and it wasn't their fault. They just weren't trained. They didn't have the skills. They couldn't drive cranes. They couldn't dog cranes. They couldn't use forklifts and most of all they couldn't use oxy because people were trapped under steel and the only way to get them out was, was using oxyacetylene. We worked all day and those people really just stood next to us looking at us. They, could, they, they couldn't contribute anything and it wasn't their fault. I felt sorry for them. So the, what, the people who did all the work was the workers. There was a lot of workers on the Port Melbourne side because that's where we fabricated all the steel and we transport across to the Williamstown side. I was, I was on the river's edge. I was probably 100 metres from the bridge. And we worked all day getting bodies out, uh, live people, dead people, arms, legs. It was, it was absolute chaos. And as I said, I didn't realise it till hours later. My father was standing for seven hours on the police barrier trying to find out whether I was alive or not because there was no mobile phones, there was no communications. Most people didn't know who was alive and who was dead. The whole office and the infrastructure come down with the Westgate Bridge. All the clock cards, nobody knew who was in and who, who wasn't in that day because it was all flattened, it was all gone. The timekeeper, first aid, bosses been wiped out. Everybody had been wiped out, not just workers. And during the course of the day... And, uh, you know, some of, the scenes, and some of the scenes that we've seen, and to be honest with you, um, there, was one, there was one stage where I'm a 23-year-old person and I should never have been allowed to see what I'd seen. We should have been protected and we should have been shielded from it. I mean, at one stage, uh, me and this other person, we were going through, there was toolboxes and scaffold and we found a, a hand... Just a hand, just a hand from here. That's all it was. And we looked at each other and we decided to pick it up and we were carrying this hand and we go up on the top of the deck, see one of the fire brigade and, and they say, well, go over there. So we went over there. And if you've ever been to the races and seen a, a horse killed, they put a screen around. There was these big screens. And then we went in behind this screen and there was four stretches and they were just covered in sand. And the reason why they were covering sand, they were placing body parts. Heads, arms, legs, torsos, putting them all together to see if they lined up. We, we as workers should never have been exposed to that. The last person that, that we got out that I was involved with uh, was on the Sunday. And he was under the bridge. Uh, we cut him out. When we got him out, the water rats had been at his body. 
all his soft tissues were gone. His eyes, um, his lips, his tongue, his penis, all gone. And the fire brigade said to one of us, oh, well, we're lucky, boys. He said, in another week, there'll just be bones left. And, you know, I'm a 23-year-old person, just a worker, same as everybody else, exposed to all this. So we worked, we worked right through to, um, as I said, it collapsed on Thursday. On Friday, we worked Saturday. They let us go home early Saturday afternoon. We come in Sunday morning for a couple of hours and there were still two people under the bridge. Um, but honestly, they, they were like pancakes. They needed... We had to get assembly massive cranes to lift the steel off and that took about two days to get these cranes because they're all over all over Victoria. So we had Monday off with pay and then we went in Tuesday morning. When we went in Tuesday morning, the gates were locked. We couldn't get on the job. So they herded us to this car park and we went to the car park and we're all lined up and this engineer stood up and told us what a great job we'd done and how really, you know, how much they thought of us and then we all got the fucking ass. Every one of us got sacked on the spot. We got one week's pay and we got our wages and that was it. See you later. Uh, we'll give you a ring, we'll send you a telegram when the job starts. So we were finished, gone. The funeral started on Thursday, Thursday and Friday. Anybody knows the western suburbs? The western suburbs um, graveyard was a, a, a big cemetery. We just sat there with car fridges in the car. As I said, nine funerals one day, five the next and when we're standing at the, at the, at the funerals and, and we're looking, I don't know if anybody's ever been in this situation where you're looking at a coffin and you actually know what's in that coffin and you know that it's not, not a full person, might not might even be the, the same person in the coffin. It's a horrible feeling. And as I said, we had, uh, we had nine of them in one day. We'd been dismissed. Uh, we had no counselling, no support. Nobody come to our homes. Nobody went and seen the widows outside of the trade union movement, outside of the organisers. There was no support, no counselling. And as I said, the bridge went down on Thursday. We dug bodies out and saved, saved a lot of lives. Then the following Tuesday we got the arse and the following Thursday we, we were going to funerals. When we got the arse, we were told that um, don't worry about it. When the job starts, you'll, uh, you'll all get your jobs back and, uh, and we'll bring you all back in. So 18 months later, we started getting telegrams, starting to go back to work. And in them days, there was uh, the BLF and there was the iron workers. The BLs basically had all the, uh, all the riggers and, and, and scaffolders and cranes in, in the billing industry. And the iron workers had the same, same sort of coverage, but that was in the metal industry. They refused to bring back the ironworker shop steward, who was an Irishman called Tony McGuigan. And it's always, this, always a case that always gets down to, to, to one person they don't bring back. And there was no arguing about victimisation or, or any of that. We're just not going to start him. So the ironworkers went on strike for nine weeks. I went on strike for nine weeks to get our shop steward back. And I'll say it loud and clear, the metal workers worked every day. They never stopped work once. They got their steward back and they didn't give a shit about anybody else. So we're, so we're on strike for nine weeks. We went back on the job. I was in a, I was in a, in a crew. There were seven of us in a crew. I was back on probably six months. 
crane driver pulled the wrong lever, steel come down, and one of the people I was working with was killed. So we lost another person six months going back. So there were 36 people killed on that job. I don't think any job is worth one death, never mind 36. If you have a look at, um, if, if, if it happened today, I mean, just have a look at how far we've come. We would have computers, we'd have technology. I would doubt if we'd ever go back to work from that meeting. I mean, there are some legal rights. We would have had engineers, we'd had unions, who, who have, who, people who have trained that would give us advice and we probably wouldn't have went back to work that day. That might never have happened. Also, not one job in Melbourne stopped. Not one job in Melbourne took up a collection. We never received any money and that's the way it was. If that happened today, no government in this land or no union would be able to stop thousands of workers stopping work and going to the Westgate Bridge to help. Nobody would have stopped that and that's the way they would have done it. There would have been collections and we would have got money and people who were in hospital, families in hospital, would receive some compensation. We never got anything in them days. And the third thing is, I doubt we would have got sacked. I would have doubted if the trade union movement or society today would have allowed them to sack us three or four days after the bridge collapsed. I would be very surprised if that happened. So that would change. I just want to say that I hope in 50 years' time that people are saying that the Westgate Bridge was the worst construction disaster this country's ever had. Because in 50 years' time, if they're saying that, that means we haven't had another one. We can't do anything about the Westgate. The Westgate Bridge is gone. It's in history. But everybody in this room can make sure it never fucking happens again. 3CR And the names of the men who died. Royvan Barbuto, Boilermaker. Ross Bigmore, Carpenter. Amadio Boscolo, Carpenter. Bernard Butters, Boilermaker. Cyril Carmichael, Ironworker. Peter Crosley, Engineer. Peter Dawson, Rigger. Abraham Eden, Rigger. Anthony Folson, Carpenter. Ezequiel Fernandez, Ironworker. Bernard Fitzsimmons, Ironworker. Victor Gerarda, Ironworker. John Grist, Boilermaker, William Harburn, Boilermaker, Jack Hindshaw, Engineer, Trevor Hunsdale, Fitter, John Little, Rigger, Charles Lund, Rigger, Peter Maguire, Rigger, Ian Miller, Engineer, Jeremiah Murphy, Rigger, Dennis O'Brien, Rigger Joseph Ozalis First Aid Frank Piamarini Rigger George Pram Rigger Leslie Scarlett Ironworker Christopher Stewart Boilermaker Alfonso Suarez Boilermaker William Tracy Engineer George Tasildis Boilermaker, 
Edgar Upstell, iron worker. Robert West, boilermaker. Robert Whelan, boilermaker. Patrick Woods, rigger. Barry White, boilermaker. Three CRs. So thank you from this program to Tommy Watson, to the BL from the Bush, to Natasha, and to Neil Blake. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the ride. See you next week. Same time, same place. Until then, it's cheerio and ciao from Left After Breakfast. And I'll leave you with this lament, the Ashokan Farewell. <laughs>